So we're going to be talking something outside of, um, outside of Genesis today. And, and Chris pretty much gave me carte blanche to preach on whatever I want. This is a very dangerous proposition. <laughs> and I kind of think that Matt was looking at my notes uh, with his offering devotion, as you'll see as we, as we go forward here. Um, one of the uh, great luxuries I have in life right now is I have a lot of flexibility in my time. Uh, the work I do here at the church is not very structured. I meet with people. I do desk work. Uh, and so I, can, I have the luxury of going to the climbing gym uh, in the middle of the day, which is great because at 10 o'clock in the morning when I get there, I have the whole gym to myself, which is, you know, so I can do whatever kind of workout I want. But the other thing that happens is um, there are actually classes at Indiana University that meet there. Get this. You can get college credit for climbing. It's only one credit, but it's a credit. Is there any other proof we need that God is good? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. And one of the things that happens is I get to interact with some of these young people. And climbing is a community, like many things in life. And there's kind of a special community with these, with these uh, people taking the class. And I met a young lady the other day. And we had the usual conversation. Are you a student? That kind of thing. And I found out that she's taking uh, some of the uh, optometry classes that you take as an undergrad, although she has a degree. Her degree is in education. And she actually taught for six months, and she discovered that teaching wasn't for her. Of course, I taught for 18 years, and I could think of 100 reasons why teaching wouldn't be for somebody. So I asked, well, what happened? And she says, well, they put me in a classroom to teach uh, world history, and there were 32 students in there, she emphasized. And the range of academic ability in that class, she said, one of the, the, the young ladies in that class would eventually graduate as the valedictorian. And she had another student in that class who could barely read at a second grade level. And she looked at me and she goes, what am I supposed to do with that? And in my head, having 18 years of teaching in public schools, I kind of said, welcome to public education. This is, this is what you get. And I kind of thought about how that kind of relates to what we're doing right now. There's about 300 people in the room right now, and there's going to be a great variation in where we are in a number of areas. For example, where are we in, 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 our, in our Christian faith? There's going to be everybody from the extreme of somebody who's been walking with the Lord for many, many years, has deeply studied God's word and has a great understanding of it, has been going through the process of sanctification with the Holy Spirit and reflects Christ in a, in a powerful and magnificent way. And then there's going to be people over here who do not understand what I just said in the last minute and a half. You walk with Christ? How does that happen? Is he in the room with us right now? Sanctification. This is an interesting word. Is it anything like sanctimonious? You'll look that one up later, I hope, right? So we're all in different, different parts of our walk, but we're also, and, and Matt kind of alluded to our culture and what's going on in our world today, we're also in different levels of entanglement in our, cultural, in our culture. One of the things that we as Christians are doing is we are constantly in the process of transformation, Correct. We are constantly in the process of the Holy Spirit, Spirit making us more Christ-like. And some of that transformation involves abandoning some of the cultural habits that we used to have or that we see exhibited around us. Some of that transformation separates us from our culture. Our culture says, seek material wealth. I get a lot of my cultural knowledge 
by listening to Mike and Mike in the morning. Sports talk show, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. But one of the things that they often touch on is, is the salaries of athletes. And it's interesting that their attitude about that is these athletes should get every penny they, they should get because that's how we operate in our culture. That's how we operate in our society. But we as Christians are called to seek the kingdom of God and that our wealth is not ours. We are stewards of it. It belongs to the Lord. Our culture, especially in the United States, says me first. If I'm in a relationship that's not very satisfying to me, I bolt. That's what our culture says. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be in relationship even when the struggles are hard. And then, of course, as Christians... We are called to certain sexual standards that may be in sharp contrast to the culture around us. I once saw a debate that supposedly was to be about God and who he is and his existence. And and one of the the anti-God debaters uh, was neurosurgeon Sam Harris. I don't know if you're familiar with famous atheist Sam Harris. He wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation which he was basically explaining why we as followers of Christ, for those of us in the room who are followers of Christ, should abandon this. And his premise was, science has proven a lot of the things primitive man needed a God for. And if you read the Bible, he tells us in this book, you know, this God you worship isn't a very nice person anyway. But anyway, in this debate, he made an interesting comment. He said, our God seems to be particularly interested in our behavior especially our behavior when we don't have any clothes on. And he, and he wanted it to be kind of a jab at, 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 at our faith and our God. And I couldn't help but tell myself, you know what, he's right. Our God does seem to be particularly interested in our behavior when we don't have our clothes on. And I'm fine with that. So, so we, we are different than the culture, right? Now, maybe you're in here and you're not a follower of Christ or you're a new follower of Christ and you be maybe a little more comfortable and satisfied with being entangled in this culture around us. Maybe this transformation process I've been speaking of is something you are unaware of, you may have never experienced, or you have no interest in. So amongst the 300 of us, there's going to be a great variety of where we are as Christians, if we are Christians, what our level of entanglement is is with our culture, And so this morning, I want to speak about how we interact with that culture, that culture that sometimes we must separate ourselves from parts of, and yet we are called to be in. And if we look at how Christians engage our culture, if we look at it from the point of view that we see on the news, we might come to the conclusion that we're doing it fairly poorly. An extreme example comes to mind, the Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas. Are you familiar with this organization? They think that the United States of America, our government and our culture, is embracing homosexuality way too much. And therefore, they choose to express that by protesting at the funerals of American service people who have died because they're defending this nation that promotes homosexuality. This is a pretty poor engagement of our culture by so-called, and I will say that, so-called Christians. There was a convenience store owner. I saw this on Facebook this last week. He put a sign in front of his convenience store that said, if you're not sure of your sexual identity, look down in your pants. 
Now, there's nothing on the post that said he was a Christian, but there was a short little interview with him, and he used Christianese. And my thought was, I don't want to be associated with somebody who engages our culture, supposedly in the name of Christ, in that manner. It was offensive to me. So what I want to talk about, I just want to chat a little bit about what's going on in our culture. As Matt pointed out, there's a lot of strife. There's a lot of discord. Christians versus Muslims, black versus white, gay versus straight, left versus right, Democrats versus Republicans, President Trump versus seemingly everybody. (laughs) But there's a passage in John's Gospel that I have thought about and meditated on quite a bit in the last few years, and it's a passage that describes how Jesus engages the culture. And I thought maybe that might be a good example for us. So would you stand please and turn to John chapter 4. This is going to be a familiar account, I'm sure. But I think there's a little bit to be learned here as we live in these contentious times. John chapter 4, we're going to read the first 19 verses and then I'm going to skip a few verses and go to verses 25 and 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, 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 whatever pronunciation you prefer, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The third parenthetical remark by John, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Skip down to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, wow. We have lots of questions. 
We need lots of guidance. Father, may your word this morning provide that guidance and those answers that we need as, as we go about your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he had made quite a stir. Uh, this is his first trip to Jerusalem since starting his ministry. Clearly, as a Jew living in Galilee, we know he had probably made many trips when he was still in his preparation time. We know of the trip he made when he was a young man and kind of stayed behind when mom and dad had started back on the journey. John records at the beginning of his gospel an incident where Jesus cleansed the temple, which we see in the other synoptic gospels at the end of his life. But John records that he did this early on. And then in John uh, chapter 2, verse 23, uh, John tells us what a splash Jesus had made with his teachings on this first early trip to Jerusalem. He says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, he makes this big splash, and then we get to our text today where we read, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. So what John is doing is applying the transitive property of troublemaking. John the Baptist is making trouble. He's a well-known troublemaker, at least in the eyes of the Jewish elite and the powerful people in Jerusalem, right? So they want to get John. But then Jesus comes along, and we found out that Jesus is out troublemaking John. Therefore, the elite Jews in Jerusalem really want to get Jesus. John tells us Jesus gets wind of this, and he's decided he's going to vamoose. So he's going to head back home. He's going to go to Galilee, and he's going to take the direct route through Samaria. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So what? The key here is that first century Jews had a racial problem with Samaritans. Actually, first century Jews had a racial problem with only almost everybody who wasn't a first century Jew. So who, who were these Samaritans that drew so much ire from the, Jew, from the Jews? If we go back several hundred years, it was a common practice of a conquering kingdom of a conquering empire, that if they conquered a land, they would relocate people. They would take some people from here, relocate them to there, and take some people from there and relocate them to here. It was a great strategy. It kept these people kind of uh, disoriented and in submission. It's really hard to, you know, mount a revolt against the reigning kingdom when you're trying to figure out the language and make a living. And then the secondary effect is, then these people would intermarry have a loss of national identity, and be further unlikely to revolt. And this is what happened in Samaria. The Assyrians conquered the land, took some of the people from that part of, of the Palestine, relocated them, and then took some Mesopotamian people and moved them there. So then there was this intermarrying along the way. There was a dilution of the, of the Jewish faith. And so the, the Samarians, these Samaritans, then were descendants of both race, and they had retained some of that Jewish nature, but they had their own Bible, they had their own Pentateuch, they had their own temple. And maybe that's what caused some of the, of the ire between the two. There was kind of a closeness, right? They were kind of like us, but not exactly like us. So many Jews would take the long way. They would go around Samaria if they were traveling from Galilee to Judea, just to avoid these people. But Jesus had no such compunction about traveling through Samaria. 
He says, we're going to go there. And we read in in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the common man, of course, traveled by foot back in that day, and you had to think ahead and accommodate the fact that at some point in time you had to eat and drink. Now, when we travel on the interstate highways in the Midwest and we need to go to the bathroom or want a cup of coffee, what do we say? Let's stop at the next McDonald's because there will be one. You had to be a little more careful back in the day. So here's Jesus at this kind of crossroads. He's weary. He sits by the well, and it's about the sixth hour. It's about noon. It's hot. He's been walking for about a half a day. And then our story begins in full. A woman from Samaria came to draw the water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Seems like a fairly simple couple of statements, doesn't it? Why does John need to tell us she's from Samaria again? We're in Samaria. A woman comes to the well. Isn't it natural to assume she's Samarian? He's making a point. This woman is a Samaritan. And there's been a couple points of contention by scholars about this woman. Some say, well, she's coming at noon because she's been ostracized. Normally women would come in the morning and the evening when it was cooler. Maybe, maybe not. There's some contention that maybe there was an an inappropriateness of Jesus addressing her as a woman with nobody else there. In fact, John says parenthetically, for his disciples had gone away. So it's just Jesus and the woman. But what is not in contention... What is not arguable is this. Jesus is making an astonishing break culturally by he, a Jew, addressing a woman who is a Samaritan. And we know this because of what John writes next. He says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John tells us, for Jews, in case we didn't know, have no dealings with the Samaritans. Here's lesson number one about engaging our culture. Jesus engaged the culture and did so from a position of knowledge. How how significant, how astonishing was this act? Jews would go out of their way on foot many miles just to avoid contact with these people. Jesus says no. No. I'm going there. I grew up in a part of Indiana called The Region. If you're from out of state, that's the Gary Hammond area. It is somewhat rugged up there. I grew up there during the decline of the the steel industry, and there were places in that area, if I was driving from point A to point B, I would go out of my way for safety reasons. But I have never experienced such disdain for another group of people that I would simply want to avoid contact with them. But that's how Jews felt, but not Jesus. Also note that he could have traveled quietly through Samaria. He's sitting there at the well. If this woman comes up to draw water, he could have not spoken to her and there would have been no offense. He did not need the woman to draw the water for him, and he was not sexist when he asked her to get the water. Jesus intentionally engaged a culture which was not his own and which was disdained by others who were a part of his culture. 
Think about that. But more than that, there was more than just this intentionality. He was prepared with a knowledge and understanding of that culture. We didn't read it, but in verse 22, when he and the woman are talking about worship, he says, you worship what you do not know. He knows that culture. He has studied that culture. He knows who they are. He engages them, and he engages them with knowledge. Jesus engaged the culture around him, and so should we. And we need to be knowledgeable about the culture around us, especially that part that is different from us. And we're going to have a couple of opportunities to do that in the near future. At the end of March, a woman has come into Bloomington. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She pursued a lesbian lifestyle, was a professor. She came to know Christ. And here is her stated reason for coming to Bloomington in her ministry. She is helping Christians to better understand their LGBT neighbors and loved ones. Why? So we can lovingly look past labels of sexual identity and share the gospel effectively. Next week, Ravi Zacharias, noted apologist, author, and speaker, is coming to Bloomington. And my understanding is he will speak And then a gentleman who used to be of the Muslim faith and is now a Christian will speak. We need to know our culture. We need to engage our culture because it's what we do. We're on mission to share the gospel. What happens next? She answers, or I'm sorry, Jesus answered. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is an interesting response. What is the subject of Jesus' response? Living water. What was the subject of the woman's question? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, why are you talking to me? She was almost picking a fight, was she not? How did he respond? Did he get in her face and lecture her on the heresy she was practicing? Did he say, look, I was just in Jerusalem celebrating the true Passover. I don't know what religion you folks are, but you've got it wrong. Did he do that? No, he did not. It's not unusual for me to have a conversation with somebody, somebody I may have met once or twice. This might be second or third conversation. And they will discover that I'm a Christian. And then I'll get a response similar to this. Oh, do you hate homosexuals? Oh, you oppose a woman's right to choose. Or my favorite, you're a right-wing conservative Republican then, aren't you? I knew you were going to do that. I got it in my notes. Matt, Matt Fields is going to amen that. So, so what, what is our natural response to that? Don't we want to defend Matt Fields? Not defend Matt Fields, but Matt Fields, don't you want to defend we have a tendency as human beings, we, we like to be right. We want to be right. We want to be right all of the time. And this is especially evident in recent political events. The travel ban, this has been fascinating to me. My Facebook has been very interesting. I have had Christian friends who oppose the travel ban posting videos and, and passages 
supporting their position supposedly from a Christian point of view. And I've had Christian friends on the exact other side doing the exact same thing. Isn't that interesting? Let me ask you a question, and then we'll look at what Jesus did. Are we basing our politics and our cultural engagement on the truth of God's word, or are we first coming to conclusions about culture and politics and then trying to manipulate God's word to fit that? Now, I'm pretty sure if I was sitting out there, I'd be thinking to my head right now, Dave, you go. You get those people who are on the wrong side. You tell them to get their Bibles out. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me encourage you to do something. Don't just get your view on issues from some well-known or not well-known pastor who puts out a video whose argument primarily is why the other side is wrong or telling you what the Bible says without ever quoting a passage of Scripture, let alone properly contextualizing it. Do the hard work yourself. Read your Bible. Get a concordance. Figure it out. Pray about it. Don't rely on those people. Now, sorry about the mini-lecture. I'm not really sorry, but it seemed appropriate to say it at the time. Lesson number two. Jesus keeps the goal relevant and clearly in sight. Now, he does not dismiss the question. He does not dismiss this idea that Samaritans and and Jews are different. He talks about it in the worship section we did not read. He keeps it a part of the conversation, but he redirects her comment to what is important and what is important, who he is and what he has to offer, living water. He does not get distracted with that argument. Notice also that the whole conversation is couched in terms which the woman would understand. She responds in verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus replies, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus teaches her based on her experience. He is giving her handles from her own experience to help her grasp. She's a woman in first century Palestine. She understands drawing water. She lives in an arid environment. She understands thirst. She's a Samaritan. She understands the concept of eternal life. The most important lesson I learned in teaching was this. In order for someone to learn, you need to connect new knowledge to existing knowledge. That's why metaphors and analogy and parables are such valuable teaching tools. As we share the gospel... We need to connect it to where the people we are sharing it with are, so we need to know them. As we engage in the culture, keep the ultimate goal clearly in sight. That was lesson two. 
So the conversation goes on, and it's clear by verse 15 that the woman isn't quite getting it yet. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still talking about physical water. So Jesus brings out the hammer. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said the true, what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? <laughs> How quickly we went from a somewhat abstract metaphor about water right down to the nitty-gritty, didn't we? It started with a question about water. Jesus says, I'd like some water. She attempts to divert the conversation to a cultural debate. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Jesus keeps the focus on what's important, spiritual matters. But the woman isn't quite getting it yet. So what does he do? He tells the woman to call her husband. Where does that come from? Is he all of a sudden saying, well, maybe we should have observe some cultural norms and I shouldn't be speaking to you without your husband here? I think that ship had sailed by then. Is he just changing the topic of conversation? No chance. Jesus is on a mission to share the knowledge of who he is with this woman. He knows what he's doing. He's taking the conversation to the next level. This conversation is not about water. It is about the separated state of this woman and all of the rest of us from the living God. And the only path, the only solution for reconciliation is Jesus. Go, call your husband. Lesson three about engaging our culture. Jesus is direct, he's positive, and he's compassionate. Jesus identifies the woman has had five husbands. He's not pulling any punches. Now, we don't know how those five husbands came about. I suppose it's possible that every separation was legitimate. Maybe she was widowed five times. Possible. But we know that right now she is not married to her current partner. I perceive that you are a prophet. We usually think of prophet as someone who foretells the future, right? But a prophet, scripturally, is a spokesperson for God. And often that spokesperson is called to confront people, either individually or as groups. So Jesus is direct and clear, and the woman is now getting it. While Jesus is offering eternal life, he is not just dismissing her sin. Here's what is important. The how of how Jesus is addressing the woman's sin. Yes, The sin of the woman is confronted and she's called to repentance, not directly in the text, but we know that's what Jesus would do. And although the sin is confronted, Jesus is not confrontational. Let me say that again. He's not confrontational. He takes great pains to ensure that she grasps what he is saying, the seriousness of her sin. But he treats her with dignity and respect which is how we should treat others as we, amongst ourselves especially, confront one another with our sin because that's what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. He realizes she has a unique history. 
We all have a unique history. This woman is living in a time when a single woman has almost no chance of survival. It's not to excuse her sin. It's to contextualize her sin. So the woman is getting it. And they have this conversation, which which we skipped in reading in our text, about worship practices. But here's the important thing. Verse 23, Jesus says this, The hour is coming and is now here. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the hour that will not only change worship, but change the entire course of the history of mankind. The conversation culminates in a statement by the woman and a declaration by Jesus. Verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And magnificent words, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine being that woman? Hearing those words? I don't think I could continue standing. I am the Messiah. Lesson four, our final lesson. Jesus tells the woman about Jesus. And that is where John's record of the conversation ends. The disciples return. The woman goes on. Now we hear a little bit more about about what she does. She goes and tells everybody what happened. But the final point, the important point, is who Jesus is. He is the one who provides living water, the living water of eternal life. It is his coming, the hour which is not here, that changes everything. He is the anointed one, the Christ, the final revelation of God to mankind. Here's what we can learn. We need to engage our culture even when our culture is something that is different from us, that we cannot, that is not something we relate to, we need to engage. That's what we're on mission to do. And as we engage that culture, we need to do so from a position of knowledge so that we can connect the gospel of Jesus Christ to where these people are right now. And when we engage the, the, the culture, we need to keep the goal relevant and clearly in sight. It's not about who's right politically. our core purpose, Redeemer. We are a gospel-centered community on mission. And as we do that, yes, we seek social justice. Yes, we seek to be merciful and help those around us. But nothing is more important than experiencing Christ. As we engage our culture, we need to be direct, but we need to be positive. We need to be compassionate. Life is hard. Just ask the Joneses right now. But we brought this on ourselves, and we continue to bring it on ourselves. We rejected God, and so we sinned. And sometimes we sin despite our best efforts in partnership with the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we do it deliberately. So when we engage each other, and when we engage our culture, let's do it directly but with grace and compassion. And as we engage our culture, never, ever forget, share Jesus. He is the answer. He lived the life we never could and died the death that we deserve. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
but by him. Right now we're going to remember what Christ did. We celebrate communion together. We renew our covenant with our Savior. This, uh, this ceremony, this act is for believers, for those who have accepted Christ, who identify with Christ. If you're not a believer right now, we just ask you to stay where you are, enjoy the music. Think about if anything I said made any sense. I hope it did. Here at Redeemer, we break the bread off and we dip it in the cup. We offer both wine and juice as your conscience leads to. There will be prayer responders around the corner in the other room. If you'd like to come and talk, if I prompted any questions, if you'd like to pray. Let's pray together now. Father God, we're so grateful uh, for so many things. You send your son to live a life we could not, but that we can learn so much from. Uh, Father, give us hearts that just embrace what you show us, what you want us to know, how you want us to act. Give us courage to go into our culture. Give us compassion as we're in that culture. Let us act with, with, with grace. Let us treat people uh, with respect. But Father, in all things, give us a heart for your mission. Give us a heart for sharing who you are and what you have done. We thank you for this time to be in your word. We thank you for this time to worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.